Well, you know, when I started off this series, I, I think I shared it at the beginning, I sat down with my daughter, Honor, our dear friend, friend Jamie. Uh, we were sitting on the back porch and we started saying, hey, we should actually do a Sunday school series where we look at these old stories in a fresh new way. And in doing that, setting out for that purpose, the biggest challenge I found was, well, what stories do you pick? Right? Because there's so many stories, you know, we started talking them through. We're like, oh, we can do the story about the baby that was in the reeds. Oh, that's a great story. Or we can do the story about the burning bush. Oh, that's a great story. We can do the story about let my people go. Oh, great story. We can do the story about the ten plagues. Oh, great story. We can do the story about going through the Red Sea. That's a great story. Oh, we can do the story about the golden calf. That's a creepy story, but a great story. You know? Like, all of this, and and here's the problem I found. With all of those great stories, they're attached to one guy. Every single one of those stories is attached to a singular personality that we know to be Moses. So do I really uh, do an entire series which is Sunday School via Moses, or do I do something a little bit different? And so I really felt led this week as I was studying. I thought it was going to go one direction. The Holy Spirit just, bam, grabbed and threw me another direction completely to where instead of looking at one of those stories or two of those stories, it's like he was saying there is tremendous value in simply looking at the life of Moses the man. Looking at how Moses acted, reacted, interjected, interceded. I mean, all of that stuff that Moses did. It was like, that's the story to look at. So today, as we look at this Sunday school series, we are looking at this whole idea of the person of Moses, how God chose him, how God used him, what God did with him, and how that matters for us. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Now, as you're opening to Exodus chapter 3, buckle up, because I will move faster than you can turn, all right? Here's why. Because the life of Moses spans Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I have notes that you don't have, all right? So, I, I can move fast. So, you're going to see things on the screen behind you, and we're just going to be cranking along. We're not going to read all of the passages that come up. Some of them are just going to be like, so you can go, oh, I see what's going on. I get the big idea. And all the things that Moses was facing. Because that's our mission, to understand all of it and why it matters for us. Now, the place that Moses' story really begins is actually not with Moses. Everything in your Bible that you have in your lap or on your app, that rhymed and didn't mean to have it happen. Um, Every one of those stories in the scripture starts with I am. Every one of the, 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 the little stories, big stories, big ideas, arcs of human history, they all are connected to begin with the one great I am who is God. And it is no different in the life of Moses. It begins with I am. And I am is going to step into the life of Moses and call Moses to himself in his grace. Like every other story we see where God calls people by grace. God calls Noah by grace. God calls Abraham by grace. God is calling Moses by grace. But you have to also understand in this how Moses was sort of preconditioned when God finally stepped into his life. 
Moses is a baby. His life is at risk. His mother puts him in a basket, sends him down the Nile. He gets caught in the reeds. Because Pharaoh wants to kill all the, the Hebrew male children, right? So he's, he's spared that. And of all the places he could land or end up, he ends up in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter, right? So Pharaoh wants to kill baby Moses, doesn't know who he is, but just wants to kill him because he's a Hebrew baby. And God, in his sovereign irony, raises this very baby in Pharaoh's own house. So Pharaoh's daughter, you know, loves Moses, cares for Moses, uh, raises him as her own child. And so Moses grows up in the home of Pharaoh as a somebody, right? He's got cloud, he's got power, he's got wealth, he's got everything. But then somewhere at about 40 years of age, he has this midlife crisis, And the crisis is one day he goes out into the the fields of Egypt, out into the workspace, and he sees there's basically a cop beating up on a Hebrew slave. And Moses gets so angry at this idea that he goes and he kills this cop, this slave driver. But that, for them, is a police officer, really. And so he kills a cop. And, And Pharaoh finds out about this, and so now Moses is on the run. See, Moses, at 40 years of age, at this midlife crisis, he tries to rescue Israel, but without God. He says, this one uh, Jewish man suffering and says, I can rescue him. But he doesn't consult his God. He doesn't really even hardly know his God. So he just steps in with his own authority and becomes a fugitive, a cop killer. And he's driven deep into the wilderness And so he goes from a somebody in the court of Pharaoh to a nobody out in the desert. And he's out there for 40 more years. Meets a nice man, settles down with his daughter, has a family, raises sheep. That's his life. But then in Exodus chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, which is funny to me, like, he sees a fire, he's like, I should turn aside to see. Like, I would just do it. I don't know if I'd tell myself I would turn aside to see. But he turns aside to see the great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw, saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, when you look at that, there's a few things that you have to understand or own about the symbolism going on in the story. First of all, the burning bush is a perfect symbol for God. Right? God is not ever to be created as an idol. We're not to make a a graven image of God. And so this isn't a graven image, but it's a great description. I mean, think about what's going on with the burning bush. It's not consumed. It's not fueled. It's not started. It's not extinguished. Just like God. God is not started. God doesn't have an end. God is not consumed. God is not fueled. God is all self-contained. And there's this scene now with this burning bush that is just completely capturing the essence of who God is. Completely self-contained, mysterious, wondrous, puzzling God, right? So that is, that is the God that is showing himself to Moses. And so Moses sees this image because God gets Moses' attention, 
And then notice, it's only after God grabs his attention that God speaks to him. Which I think has tremendous value for us because I find so often in life that God wants to get our attention, but only when he has our attention are we going to hear him speak. And sometimes we are so busy, so consumed, so just enraptured with other things that God cannot get our attention. He's over here. Over here. There's this thing. We're like, I'm I'm, I'm busy. God's like, I want to share something with you. I know, but but I'm just not paying attention. But here, Moses is paying attention. And so God then can speak to Moses to let him know what he needs to do, right? And so in verse 5, it says, Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for this place on which you are standing is holy ground. In other words, God says, I own this. This is my house, right? If I went to Moses' house, I should take off my shoes because it's his house. It's his space. It's his land. God says, this is my space. Take your shoes off. All right? Because this is holy ground where you are standing. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Right? And then God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this is the most unlikely candidate, right? Just some guy, a fugitive, on the run, 80 years old, hanging out in the desert, tending some sheep, and suddenly God in his grace says, yes, I want to get your attention. Yes, I want to use you. Yes, I have a plan. And here it is. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Yippee-doo, right? I mean, that is a huge thing that suddenly... Moses is thrust in the center of. I mean, this is some weighty stuff, but this is God's grace. And I'm sure if I'm Moses and I hear that, suddenly, even though I have no sandals to quake in, I am just quaking on the sand. Right? It's like, wait a minute, let's let's do the math here. I've, I've known the pharaohs. They have wanted just dead on their poster with me. I grew up in that household. I know how it works. And now you want me to go in my retirement years to do this in Egypt. How? How is this going to happen? How is it going to work? And God says, well, not only am I calling you in my grace, I'm equipping you in my strength. Verse 11. It says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Best line in the story. And God said, I will be with you. That's it. I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? And God says, somebody with I am. That's who you are. That's the big difference. Right? In and of himself, as a guy, Moses doesn't have a lot of assets to really pull from. As you're going to see, he has virtually none. 
But God's going to look at this and say, oh, no, 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 man, you don't get it because when you are weak, well, I, I'm strong. When, when, when you can't do it, I can do it. When you realize you can't handle any heavy lifting, I am there to carry the load. Moses, you are the right guy for this because it will make much of me because you know now you are a nobody. Because that's exactly where Moses goes, right? In fact, as it goes on in verse 13, he even says that. I, I'm just, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm the wrong guy. You knocked on the wrong bush here. Not me. Right? Go someplace else, find a younger guy, a faster guy, a bolder guy, a stronger guy, whatever. God says, no, I got the right guy because I'm going to give you my strength. And not only that, he says, and I am going to fulfill my purpose through you. Verse 18. He says, the elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go before the king of Egypt and tell him the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. It says, but know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. And I will cause the Egyptians, this is great, and I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you, and they will give you gifts when you go so that you will not leave empty-handed. Here's, here's what God does. This is so great. This is day one, all right? Day one of soon to be a 40-year cycle. Day one, God says, Israel will listen to you. Pharaoh will be hard, but let you go. And when you leave Egypt, people are going to give you stuff. That's day one. Now, here's the problem. God tells us all sorts of things day one. And then we have to live them. God makes promises to us all the time. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been given the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. There is everything you have for life and godliness. Day one, he tells you the story. He even tells you the end. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be glorified. You're going to sit on my throne with me. You're going to reign forever and ever with Christ. And then we have to live out life in light of those truths and promises. And Moses has to do the exact same thing. So day one, God tells him the end of the story. God tells him all the hurdles that are going to be overcome. And, and he's still got to live it. Right? I mean, that, that's, going, that's going to be the real hard part. We all know the promises day one. And we still have to live it. Not easy. My favorite promise in this is the fact that he says, and man, when you leave Egypt, they're going to be giving you stuff. Be like, just go, just go, right? And in fact, it's interesting. God even says, uh, your women can start saying, hey, that's a nice gold bowl. Can I have that? And the Egyptians are like, yep, there you go. Just, just get out. So God has made a promise. I'm calling you in my grace. I'm equipping you in my strength. I'm fulfilling my purpose through you. But Moses is going to have some responsibility in this. The plan is marked out. The promises are sure. Everything's in place. But God's going to say, as I am doing this, Moses, you must. Moses, you must do some things. Now, this isn't going to be easy for Moses to take up some of these responsibilities because Moses has a lot of insecurities in his life. He has a lot of struggles. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, 
says, but Moses protested again. I didn't even tell you that he protested in chapter 3. It didn't bother. He does it so much, it doesn't matter, right? So, he protests in chapter 4 again. He says, what if they won't believe me or, or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Right? Now, he's talking about just Israel, just the Hebrews he's worried about. He hasn't even gotten to Pharaoh yet. And all of his concerns about Pharaoh, he's just concerned that the Israelites will be like, yeah, you're cute. Where are you from? Grandpa. I mean, honestly, that, that's going to be his concern. But then the Lord asked him, what is in your hand? And Moses said, a shepherd's staff. Now, I had somebody bring me a nice staff today, so don't get out of line. All right, so, um, no, he, he just, here he is, he's a shepherd, he's out there, Right? And of all the questions to ask when he's got all this doubt, all of this fear, all of this insecurity is, hey, what you holding? Like, is that not the weirdest question? Like, instead of God just chastising him, he's like, oh, what's in your hand? It's rhetorical. God knows, right? It's a staff. One of the things we don't contemplate is we just go, oh, yeah, so he's holding a stick. But we don't realize what this stick meant for Moses. See, if you're a shepherd, a stick is going to symbolize a lot of things, but three things really, really critically. First of all, if you have a shepherd's staff or stick, this represents your identity. What you holding, shepherd's staff? Why? Because I'm a shepherd, right? So, like, it's pretty straightforward. This is his identity right here. More than that, it represents his income because what do you have? A lot of sheep. Why? Money. You know? Like, so, it's his identity. It's his income. And then the third part of this is, and it represents his influence. What do you, what do, you do with that? I hit sheep. Right? I push them. Pull them. I influence them. Right? So, you, you take this simple image, right? And, and then suddenly you realize that when God says, what do you have? It's not just a stick. It's not. It, as much as if you're in the tech industry and, and you have a computer, it's not just something for Facebook, right? It's not. If you're a cop and you have a gun, it's not just for target practice. So in the same way, God says, what do you have? And he says, this is what I have. This is my influence. This is my income. This is my identity. God says, great, I want to make sure we got that straight. Because what you're going to need to do is see your identity, your income, and your influence as mine. You're going to have to see it as mine. If this is going to work, you have to see it as mine. So this is what God does. He says, now throw it down on the ground. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told them. So Moses threw the staff on the ground and it turned into a snake. Right? That's weird. I, I mean, of all the things, like, why not, like, an aardvark? Or, you know, like, why? Because snakes are creepy, and I, there was one in Eden, and that's not good. So I don't know why it turns into a snake. But Moses jumped back, and I would too, probably screaming like a girl, like I would too. And so, then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. 
Now, again, this is one of the many stories in the life of Moses that we just go, man, that's just weird. I don't even know what to make of it unless you understand all of the kind of cultural symbolism that's attached to this. Because God says, I see your identity, I see your income, I see your sense of of influence, and I want you to take that and I want you to throw it down. You stop thinking it's yours. You stop thinking that this is your person, that you plot your destiny, that you have control over these things. If you're going to follow me, you must throw all of that down before me. Right? All of it. So he throws it all down, and then God does something with the staff. He does something miraculous. Right? Something where you suddenly know there's something that's changed about that. Because there's something that's changed about the man who wields it now. So then God says, I want you to pick it back up. And picks it back up, and it turns back into a staff. But you know what's interesting about this? The staff now has power. It's not just influence. It's not just income. It's not just identity. But now it is infused with a God-sized agenda. Right? God-sized. It's some huge stuff. Because now it's not just Moses with a stick. It is the man of God with the rod of God. That's a very big difference. Right? So that is how he outfits him and prepares him. He says, it's all got to be mine. And you know, it's the same thing for us. Listen, when, when, when Moses is going to walk away from this scene, he's going to walk away as a legitimately changed man, fully surrendered, fully trusting, fully committed, fully centered on God. That's the way he's going to leave. In other words, he is now the most dangerous 80-year-old man to walk the planet. He is like the biblical Yoda, all right? Amazing. Fully equipped, fully inspired, fully ready to go. But then God isn't done. Because there's some truths that are going to unfold, right? You can think, like, oh man, he's got the stick, he's feeling good, he's got his God, everything's going to rock, it's going to roll, it's going to be... Man, God's just going to, woo, wield the power! No, there's going to be some tough stuff. And so throughout the story of Moses, you're going to see God telling him certain things. He's going to say, you still must do some things. You must not simply relinquish those three things to me, but you must also hold certain things of mine as dear. First of all, he's going to say, Moses, you must hold my plan as truly best. You must hold my plan as best. And this is hard, because think about the plan that God rolls out. The first part of the plan is God wants to send a reluctant preacher who cannot preach. That's the first part of the plan. Right? We watch like the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Pharaoh! Let my people go. I always feel like you'd say, you dirty ape. But he doesn't. Different movie. I know. Um, that would have made it awesome. All right. So, right? But it's this bold, strong, determined Charlton Heston. But what's Moses' problem? Let my people go. He stutters. He says it multiple times. God, you can't send me. I'm a bad preacher. I can't even talk. You, you need to go in the future and get that Charlton Heston guy. Because I'm Elmer Fudd. You know, I don't, I don't do this. It's why I'm a shepherd. They go, bah, and I go, bah, back. That's what we do. Right? I don't preach. I'm not even equipped for it. You're picking the wrong guy. 
But see, God knows because God is going to flex. He's going to move. He's going to show that it's not about how crafty we are, but how good and powerful he is. That's what he's going to show. So he's going to have to trust that the plan is best, even though the reluctant preacher says, well, I can't preach. Then it's going to get even stickier because he's going to send the reluctant preacher who cannot preach to a hardened leader who cannot respond. Right? A number of times it says, God says, I will harden Pharaoh. It also says that he was hard. It also says Pharaoh was hardened. I mean, countless times, I, I think it's like, like 15 times just in Exodus, we see Pharaoh was hard. God hardened Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not going to respond. Pharaoh's not going to listen. He's not going to repent. All these kinds of things. And yet God's going to say, I I need to keep sending you to that. You're going to have to trust that my plan is best, sending you to a hardened leader who cannot respond. Now, sometimes theologically, even people get into this like, oh, well, is it fair that God hardened Pharaoh? Was Pharaoh hard? Who cares? He was hard. That's what matters. And God was at work. So he's going to have to hold that the plan is best. Moses is also going to have to hold that God's plan being best even though it's going to mean a supernatural war with human casualties. That's a really hard one. We see in Exodus 15.3 that God is a warrior. We see in Exodus 12.12 that he's going to war with the gods of Egypt. That's what the plagues are. The plagues are actually God going to war with supernatural deities that rule over Egypt. And the consequence is going to be lots of casualties. Lots of human carnage, animal carnage, the firstborn of everything dead in Egypt. I mean, you just look at what happened over on the East Coast, or you think about Katrina, or you think about Haiti. I mean, these things pale in comparison to what happened with the plagues. That's a very hard thing to stomach, and we could go, boy, how is God just in that? We have to believe that his plan is best. And so Moses will have to do that. And then on top of all of it, he's going to have to hold to God's plan being best when he engages in a natural war with a fearful civilian army of families. I mean, think about what God asks him to do. He says, I'm going to take you to a promised land and and you're going to conquer it. Right? You're going to take entire families. I mean, imagine if the United States military, the Marines said, we're going to uh, Iraq. So grab your wife and kids. You're all going. It's a lot of stress. Right? On top of it, most of these people are slaves. They're not warriors. They're not generals and soldiers or anything else. This is the same group of people that gave us Woody Allen. I mean, this is not. This is not like you go, hey man, crack army right there. You know, it's like, oh, I, I got a bunion. I don't, you know, like, I can't go to war. You know, that's going to be the problem. So all the way around, I can't preach. He's hard. This is going to be a big spiritual battle. And then we've got to go to natural war with these people. And God says, yes, my plan is best because, again, God flexes in weakness. God flexes in weakness. And so often I think that God wants to flex in our own lives, but we're too busy being strong. We're too busy being self-determined, self-preserving, self-fulfilling, self fighting, self-righteous. God says, man, I want to flex, but you're just not letting me flex. You're not even paying attention. You don't see me that I'm waving over here like a burning bush to tell you what you need to do. You keep trying to figure out what you should do as opposed to listening to me and how I can do something in and through you far greater. It's going to be tough for Moses to hold the plan. It's especially going to be hard for him to hold the plan when he also must hold the timeline as best. 
I mean, again, keep in mind the timeline. He's a senior citizen leader. I mean, honestly, Moses is 80. His sidekick, Aaron, is 83. The image you have is Statler and Waldorf leading the Muppets, you know, like up in the balcony. Oh, whatever, you stupid Muppet. You know, like that's, that's these two guys. We get to take all the Muppets out of Muppet Egypt and into Muppet Promised Land. That's what we're dealing with, right? I mean, this is a tough gig. Again, it's not often, if almost ever, that you see somebody at 80 years of age start a revolution, pick a fight with a mighty and powerful king, lead some kind of movement that changes the world forever. When you're rolling in on 80, man, you're like, hey, I'm settling down and figuring out how to pass the sheep off to the kids. You know, this is not my gig. God says, no, man, it's your gig. You're going to have to trust my timeline. I know you may ask, why at 80? And God's going to say, because you're 80. And I think that should speak to everybody that is senior and seasoned in this room. This is what can I do? You know, it's interesting to look at almost every character minus Joseph was a senior citizen that we've looked at in this series. Noah was older. Abraham is older. Moses is older. Right? You're freed up to lead. You're freed up to be faithful. You're freed up to be used. You're, you know the power of God. You've seen him work countless times. We need you. Don't stay in the desert. Get into the game, right? Just like Moses. Trust the timeline. He's also going to have to trust the timeline because he's going to go into a series of useless negotiations. Right? I mean, they, they honestly look completely useless. God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. He's going to say no. All right, then what? I'm going to send you back. Then what? I'm going to send you back. Then I'm going to send you back. You know, I could keep doing that because I counted 13 times. Right? Imagine, like, after, like, time nine, right? he was rolling in on 10. You know, he's going to be like, you know, and first, like, yeah, I know, I know. You know I mean? Like, do I even say, let my people go? Because we can get real practical, real functional, real fast, right? Well, if this doesn't make sense, then God wouldn't have me do it. Because God always makes sense when he tells you to do something. Right. So, he's going to say, keep going. And, and here's what he tells him every time. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, and he'll say no. Go. Go. It's like you already know the ending, but you do it anyway. You've got to trust the timeline. And then they're going to have a 40-year walk through kitty litter. Right? Good times there. Right? The 40-year wilderness journey, or as I like to affectionately call it, Ikea. All right? So, that's, that is what they're facing. 40 years. Right? The trip is just a couple of days. I mean, don't, don't misread this. Like, Egypt to the promised land is like nothing. They border each other today. This is not a long trip, but it's going to turn into a long trip for one great, grand, beautiful, glorious, God-fearing reason, and that is he's got to beat the stupid out of Israel. And it's going to take 40 years of beating to beat it all out. And I, I couldn't help but even think about that this week. And I thought, man, alive. I wonder how many things God's like, Matt, I would have gotten you there in like three days, but you're stupid. And I had to beat that stupid out of you. That's grace, by the way. I know somebody, oh, first of all, he said stupid. Mom said not to. No, it's a good word. Um, 
Solomon uses it throughout the Proverbs. It's beautiful. Because stupid is sin. Sin does hurt. And God does need to beat it out of us in love. That's discipline. And so God disciplines Israel. He beats the foolishness and the stupid out of them. For 40 years, that's the timeline. Now again, Moses could say, is that timeline best? God would say, yes. And Moses would have to say, all right, then it's, then it's best. And then for all of that, he's got to also hold that the route is best. Plan, timeline, and route. What's the route? Away from the familiar and the secure. Right? He's going to lead them basically away from all their idols. Egypt is riddled with idols, and the people of God have embraced these idols as the things that will save them, that will heal them, that will secure them, that will fix them. And so often God says, you know what? You trust your idols more than me. You fear your idols more than me. You long for your idols more than me. You depend on your idols more than me. And I'm reading this this week, and I'm going, wow, that's yes, that's right, idols. And then I started realizing, whoa, wait, I've got idols. And sometimes God wants to do that painful thing that says, I'm going to lead you away from your idols, and it's going to, it's going to scare you. You're even going to start to rationalize. No, no, they're not idols. They're just practical. All idols are practical. All idols are tactical little saviors. That's all they are, right? Financial idol is just a little financial savior. It's going to save you money-wise, right? Whatever else it is, it's going to save you health-wise. It's going to save you relationally-wise. And we go, I need those things more than I need my God. God, he's distant. He's once removed. He doesn't deal in those affairs. I have to deal in those affairs. Now, again, I'm not saying that all those things are automatically idols. But if we go, I trust them more. I seek them more. I fear them more. I crave them more. I need them more. Idols. And so Israel, man... They've got idols, and so God is going to pry them away from the familiar and secure, and then he's going to toss them into the impossible and formidable to where they say, you know what? We have nothing or no one but God. That's what he's going to have to work out. And so he's going to take them, and they're going to be a people that are wandering, yet destined. And I find that's often our lives. The day we get saved is not the day we just instantly go to heaven. We still have to wander, right? We have our 40 years with God in wilderness where God is testing us and shaping us and refining us and weaning us from our idols and drawing us to himself. I mean, this is what he does. And so the destination's clear, but the journey, that's going to be long. And see, I believe God does it this way because frankly, as human beings, we don't do memos well at all. We don't do verbal warning well at all. We don't accept those, right? How many of you have been ever pulled over by a cop and he just gave you a warning and you never sped again? That was enough for me. Sure, right? What God finds sticks is pain. Pain sticks, right? Hardship sticks. That causes the lesson to sink in deep to the soul. And so God says, there's a plan, there's a timetable, there's a route, and it's going to be best. And so Moses, I want you to do it. And as you do it, you also must believe my promises, my warnings, and my provisions. This is this other lesson that God teaches Moses throughout the course of his ministry. You must believe the promises, warnings, and provisions as sure. The promises are this. I will uphold the expectations of my own in my way. 
See, as followers of God, we have right expectations of God. God says, I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will look out for you. I I will handle all this. And so our expectation should be, God, I trust you with everything. That's a proper and right expectation. What happens, though, is sometimes we go, I trust you with everything. And what I mean by that is, the way I think is best to take care of me, you should do. God says, whoa, wait, I'm going to do it in my way. Not your way. See, Matt, your way is you're going to say, God, I have this need right now. This is the need. This is the solution. Right? And God's going to say, yes, it is a need. That is not the solution. Right now is not the time, and I will do it my way. Because I just know better than you. But I promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never give up on you. I will never abandon you. I will always love you. I will always forgive you. I will always keep you. But I'm going to do that, do that in, in my way. There's also the warnings. Where God says, I will address sins of my own, that is, my own people, in my way. Right? There's a lot of sins that we get into. And sometimes we look at certain sins and we go, wow, that would be impossible to, to fulfill. So, of course, I sin in that. Or we go, oh, those commands are too lofty. Or maybe they're archaic or they're bigoted or they're mundane or they're silly. And, and so we kind of start to size things up. But God says, no, I've just decreed it is what it is. Truth is just truth and sin is just sin. And sometimes I respond very mercifully to your sin. And other times I respond very uh, harsh and swiftly to your sin. I, I will do it the way I see fit. And God's going to do that with the children of Israel. There's going to be sometimes on this wandering thing where like they do something really stupid and you're waiting for God just to go like, done! And he doesn't do that. Then there's other times where they do something stupid and he's like, yeah, okay, that one right there. I mean, he does. Whether we like that or not, that's what he does because he says, I will address the sins of my own in my own way. So Moses needs to believe that. And then, of course, the provisions. God will handle provisions, and sometimes those provisions are overt. Water from rock, food just laying on the ground, similar to if you have toddlers, um, right? But then sometimes it's covert where God says, you know what, your sandals just aren't going to wear out. It's going to be really weird. You're going to be like, wow, man, I have had these same Nikes for 40 years. You know, like, why didn't they just fall apart? Because God just takes care of those things. Sometimes it's covert. Sometimes it's overt. In our own lives, when God calls us to do things, and we go, boy, I don't know if I have the resources to do that. If we trust God and we're faithful, God says, you know what? I'm just going to make things happen that you can never figure out. You're not going to understand why you got 250,000 miles off of those tires that were only 30,000. because they were cheap, and that's all you could afford. Or somehow food is just going to go further than it should, or the bank account goes further than it should, or you buy that one disposable razor for 99 cents, but you use it for a year, and you don't know why you can still use it. Should have went dull by now. Shit, you're amazing. Now, God's amazing. There you go, come on, those are little things. Does God really do that? Yes, welcome to the Western mind that doubts such things. But God just takes care of the little things. And I bet I could ask every one of you in this room personally, say, was there ever a time where you were in dire straits and you didn't know how it was going to work out? And you would say, yes. And I'd say, did it work out? And you'd say, yes. And if I said, how? You'd say, I don't know. Right here. God provides. God promises. God warns. God provides. Now, here's why all of this is critical. This is where we go high gear real fast here. It's critical 
Because God's going to say, commitment will mean confrontation. Moses, you've got to be all these things, know all these things, do all these things, have this mindset, have this focus, have this passion, have this, this sense of resolve because, man, what I'm going to ask you to do is going to be commitment and it will bring conflict and confrontation. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron, right? Statler and Waldorf, they went and they said to Pharaoh, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, Right? And then Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Period. I mean, this is quite the scene. And so there's this, this interchange. Where, where Moses and Pharaoh say, or Moses and Aaron are saying, you just need to let him go. And Pharaoh's saying, No. And at one point, somewhere, Moses looks at Aaron and says, do the thing. So Aaron rolls in with the staff. Boom, fellas, check that out. Staff becomes a snake. It's like, what do you think now? So Moses says, fellas, come here. All of his magicians come out. Boom, 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 boom. They all turn to snakes. That's what's up. You know, like, suddenly it's like, you know, a one-on-five snake fight is not good for Moses and Aaron. It looks like they're, they're going to lose. But then it says... In verse 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, but still Pharaoh was hard and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, I don't even know how that happened, right? So there's like all these snakes and then Aaron's snake and it starts eating the other snakes. I'm like, snakes eat slow. <laughs> like, you know, where they're like, all right, when's it going to be over? I don't know. But it eats all these snakes. And again, it just shows that God is in control. It doesn't matter the odds. Even as Pharaoh says, no, God's in control, but it's going to mean confrontation. It's not going to be easy. That's why we must see our identity, our income, and our influence as his. Hold to his plan, his timeline, and his route as best. Believe his promises, his warnings, and his provisions as sure. Otherwise, we will melt in the face of confrontation or we will rage regarding it. Right? That's going to be the challenge. It gets worse. So it's not only is there going to be confrontation, but... The conditions are going to look impossible. Exodus chapter 13. Right? They're going out of Egypt on the way out. Hey, that's a nice gold pot. Hey, that's a nice silver bowl. And they're just giving stuff, right? So they're stacking up all their gear. They're getting heavy. Good thing there's not water ahead. All right? So, but God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Right? If you're holding the map, you're like, oh, we're supposed to go that way. Right? And God says, no, nah, we're going, going this way. Right? That way. He says, no, I know what I'm doing. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and at night in a pillar of fire, right? To give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So you got like this jet engine twister. It's awesome. I want one of these, right? This would be so clear. Like if God was like, uh, Matt, I want you to go to a stop. We're going. I'd be like, all right, I'm following I'm good with that. I wouldn't even have to make decisions. I just follow the fire. Wherever I'm eating lunch is where it's going. All right, that's what they're supposed to do. All right, so it looks good. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. and Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. I'm like, you've got a pillar of fire and smoke, man. I mean, that's like the ultimate ray gun. All right, that's pillar of fire beats rock, paper, scissors. I don't know why you're freaking out. All right? 
I win. That's what they've got. Right? But they're greatly afraid. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness, you whiners. He says, why have you done this and brought us out of Egypt? Right? And if I'm Moses at this point, I'm like, get off my camel. Go, nope, I'm done. Sand, we're done. I'm moving on. But that's not what Pharaoh, or that's not what Moses does. Instead, it says, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because he's banked on all of this stuff, right? He says, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord, which will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Stop being so frantic. I gotta solve it, I gotta fix it, I gotta run, I gotta get on the treadmill, I gotta make sure I solve my problems in life. He says, stop. You just sometimes gotta be still and silent and listen and seek and plead and pray and say, God, here's what we need. Right? And that's exactly what is happening here. He says, just do that. Be silent. At the same time, I laugh because God's got a sense of humor. He says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. It's like there's this decisive moment where you can also sit there and just pray forever. Please, 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 please. God's like, I love it that you're on your knees. Now you've got to get on your feet. Right? So they need to be silent. They need to plead. They need to ask. But then at some point, God says, get on your feet. Get moving. Get going. He says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. And he says, lift your staff, that rod of God, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, here's the deal. God told the people to move first, and then he opened the sea. God did not open the sea and then tell the people to go. Here's another great lesson. God will often ask you to step out into the darkness. He will ask you to do things where you go, but I don't see the plan. And God says, no, no, I told you the plan from day one. I'm always with you. I always take care of you. I will never forsake you. You're always going to have an eternal life. Go. Go. As to what happens next, mystery. But God is with you. And so they go. Sometimes in life, life is going to look impossible. Conditions will look insurmountable. And you need to go. Another reality, journey always breeds suffering. Always. Israel's constantly suffering out in the wilderness. God is with them, but they're constantly like, we're thirsty! We're hungry! All these things. It's always going to be suffering, but boy, you've got to see and hold and believe because God is not going to forsake them. Additionally, man, he's going to have to see, hold, and believe because the people will sin continually. Right? The people turned against Moses. The people grumbled in their tents and refused to obey the Lord. The people celebrated with feasting and drinking. They indulged in pagan rivalry before the altar of the golden calf. And these people were just difficult. They're going to sin often. And when people around you sin often, what, what we see from God is that, you know what? We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be offended. We shouldn't be self-righteous. We should simply seek to win them over. God is allowed to whack them. They're they're his. We should seek to win them, not whack them. Right? And so Moses, the guy that has to constantly intercede and say, God, don't take him out. Is, as soon as he does that on the mountain, says, don't, don't wipe him out. Then he gets to go down and he finds out, oh, they're all talking about you. They don't like you. That's a tough thing to say, I'm going to intercede for people that don't like me. But that's what he has to do. 
people will sin continually. More than that, multiply, enemies will multiply spontaneously. Right? Moses had tons of enemies in his life. He had external enemies like Pharaoh or some of the places they invaded. He had internal enemies like Korah, who was this guy that just tried to split the, the, the basic you know, Israelite village, if you will. And even his closest friend Aaron stabs him in the back, betrays him, is talking about him, stirring up some trouble. Right? So he will need God's strength because all of this pressure, all of this responsibility, all of this heartache will wear. And frankly, it will wear Moses so thin that he does finally crack and sin. He does finally sin. And Numbers, which if you think Numbers isn't cool, Numbers is awesome, all right? Numbers, chapter 20, it says, In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin, right? And there, when they get there, there's no water for the people to drink at the place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Shocker, right? Like they haven't done that 50 times. And the people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die? Man, this is like second verse, same as the first. With all of our livestock. Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? The land has no grain or figs or grapes or pomegranates or like sobeys or Pop-Tarts or cable or Wi-Fi. Or any, doesn't have, it doesn't have any water. Right? I mean, they're just... You're dying of thirst and you're worried about a pomegranate? Really? You're worried about water. All right? So it says, Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell down on their face to the ground. And then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire congregation. And as the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. Got it. Here's the plan. Right? Take the staff, assemble the people, speak to the rock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it had been kept before the Lord. And then he took Aaron and he summoned the people to come before the rock. And then he gets them there and he says, listen, you rebels. And right there you should go, uh-oh, it's going to go bad really fast. Right? I mean, as soon as he rolls in on that, you rebels, he shouted. He says, we will bring water from this rock. And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff. And water gushed out. And the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving. Put yourself in his sandals. Forty years faithful, 40 years grumbling, 40 years trusting, 40 years serving, 40 years doing the right thing, right ways, each time trusting God, blocking his wrath from the people, and then one day you have this moment of irritation, and you go, fine, bam, bam, and God says, you just lost the promised land for yourself. I don't know about you, but I remember reading that story, going, that seems really unfair, but then put it into the context goes into the tent, falls before the Lord, and the holiness of the Lord's presence comes into the place. When, when God physically materializes some way, He reveals Himself to you, and He gives you three basic commands, you follow all three. Precision matters. God, you don't have to be precise, just generic. No, precision matters. 
especially in this. And so uh, there's this holiness of God, and God is going to provide for the people. God is not nearly as mad at the people right now as Moses is. So Moses, using the power of God, inflicts his own sense of kind of, I'll, I'll show you, when it wasn't warranted. God says, that's it. The reality is, the closer you are to God, the more accountable you are for your actions. The closer you are to God, the more accountable you are for your actions. But it also means the closer you are to God, the deeper your access to Him, which will be way more satisfying than anything else anyway. Moses, he gets angry, he gets frustrated, blows it. Now what does all of this mean? Well, some lessons that we learn, and I'm going to wrap up here real quick. What God would say in all of this is because it's going to be this whole ordeal, you need to trust me no matter what. Trust me no matter what. Do not put your trust in idols or make images that are graven of the gods for yourselves. You need to trust me no matter what. And if you trust me no matter what, you'll know me. Right? You'll know me. If, if, we don't, if we don't even try to trust God with the hard things, why would we ever think we would know Him? Right? We're not just not going to know Him. We're going like, to know about Him. We're going to know of Him. We're not going to know Him unless we trust Him, no matter what. Additionally, God's going to say, seek me, no matter what. Moses goes up onto the mountain, Exodus 33. He's all freaked out. God, if you don't go with us into the promised land, then nobody's going to know how unique we are. We're going to be like every other nation of the earth. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to be interested. You need to go with us. And so the Lord replied to Moses, He says, I indeed will do what you have asked, for I have looked favorably on you, and I know you by name. So what do you want? And then Moses says, show me your glorious presence. I mean, of all the things that Moses could want, I just want to get to the promised land. I just want it to be over. I just want you to put duct tape over every one of their mouths. He he could have asked anything. And he says, God, I just want to know your presence. I just want to see your glory. I just want to be captured in what it is you have to offer. This is the one great grand prayer of all people. It should be what we seek. Because if you seek this, then what happens is exactly what happened to Moses is you reflect God. Those who seek God reflect God. Those who simply obey God, but don't seek God, they they reflect something less. They reflect law or adherence. Moses wanted God, so he seeks him no matter what, so as to reflect him. God's also going to say, though, man, make sure you obey me no matter what. Right? He says, if you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord, so obey me no matter what, so as to enjoy me. Obedience brings enjoyment. Obedience is not a drag. It's not an impediment. It's freedom. And then last, God is going to say, and worship me no matter what. No matter what. Here's Moses' final ending. Um, God takes him up onto the mountain. God shows him the promised land. He says, all that work, all this 40 years. In fact, all this 120 years. Your 40 years as a somebody. Your 40 years as a nobody. Your 40 years now being aware that you're nobody, but you're empowered by me. And that makes you somebody very special. Because you've been that whole 120 year gambit. There's the promised land. But you hit that rock. And I am going to kill you here. You will die here. I will take your life here. You will be buried in a place that nobody knows. I'm going to do that. Now, at that point, Moses can be really, really bitter. But apparently, 
He was anything but bitter. By the time he gets to this point, he can even receive this consequence of his actions. Why? Because he's been on the mountain. He's seen the glory. He knows his God. He's seen the blessing of obedience. He knows the destruction of disobedience. He gets it that God is God and he is not. And even in that final moment, he yields himself worshipfully to his God. He lets his God take him. What's great about that is that when you then start to see Moses again, it's in funny places. In fact, the funniest place to me is here's Jesus goes up on this mountain to pray, brings some of his disciples, just needs to be strengthened. The Father wants to affirm him. And you know who shows up to affirm the Son of God? Moses. Matthew chapter 17, Moses shows up with Elijah, and they're there just encouraging the Son of God. Because Moses worshiped no matter what. When your life is bad, worship no matter what. When your life is hard, worship no matter what. When your life is good, worship no matter what. When you are suffering from some physical ailment, worship no matter what. When your bank account is empty, worship no matter what. When things are completely sliding downhill, worship no matter what. When you feel like God isn't there for you, you still worship no matter what. Worship with conviction. Worship with hope. Worship with joy. Worship. It's no small thing to worship when it's hard. Now, why is this so critical? I close with this passage out of 1 Corinthians. Again, we want to suck everything back to Jesus. And so Paul writes, he says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. He's writing to us. He says, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual walk that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. You know what's so weird about that? I mean, the Holy Spirit just brought this to mind. It's so weird that Moses strikes the rock twice, the rock that is Christ, but then he's there to encourage that same rock on the mount. Christ was always there with them. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us. Why did we study this whole thing today? It's a warning to us. So that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking. They indulged in pagan rivalry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and died from snake bites. And don't grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Therefore, Paul says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from the other, what others experience. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you the way out so that you can endure. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Right? Flee from the things that you trust more than God, fear more than God, love more than God, want more than God, dream about more than God, hope for more than God, pay for more than God, whatever it is. Right? Paul doesn't say um, augment them to bring them down on a lower scale. He says flee them. Flee them. 
and seek your God. Why? Because you've been called in His grace. You've been equipped in His strength. He has a purpose to fulfill through you. So you can trust, you can seek, you can obey, you can worship. Because commitments will mean confrontation, journeys breed suffering, conditions will look impossible, people will sin continually, and enemies will multiply spontaneously, you will wear thin and sin, and yet Jesus remains faithful always. To love you, forgive you, aid you, and use you for his glory and your good. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this reminder As you were with Moses in the wilderness, so you too are with us today. As we learn life lessons from Moses, they are for us to learn today. May we, in essence, receive the memo more than we have to live and endure the pain that these things can teach. We need you and seek you and praise you in your awesome name. Amen.